So I have had a sermon prepared for a couple weeks because we canceled last week, right? Like, thanks, you guys, for, you know, not being upset with us that we couldn't quite pull it together to get our, our stairs de-iced and all of that before service was happening. It was just pretty treacherous last week, and so we thought that we would err on the side of caution and, 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 and help everybody make a good decision to be safe. But So my sermon's been ready for a couple weeks now. But before I get into that, I wanted to take just a couple of minutes to talk about some things that have been in the news this week. Um, most of you will be aware that there was um, a very large-scale school shooting at a high school in Florida, in Parkland, Florida. Uh, 17 people lost their lives, some of them 14- and 15-year-old students, some of the teachers and adults. Just a, a horrific tragedy, a horrible situation, and one that, that we just... You know, we're tempted to not even talk about because it's hard to know what to say. Um, But I think it's important for us to talk about it as the church. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves because the question that I heard people asking on the news and I saw on social media, the question is always, well, where is God? And, And, you know, where does our faith and where does spirituality play into events like this? And so I just wanted us to remember together this morning where the blame really, lo- really lies uh, for tragedies like this, where, where we can, can point our, our anger and our frustration and our grief. And, and the blame firmly belongs in the lap of the enemy of our souls, of Satan. Sometimes we don't like to talk about that, but you know, it's not fashionable to believe in the devil anymore. It makes us seem like we're a little bit superstitious weirdos if we're not careful. But he is so real. And, and it's really important for us to understand kingdom theology and understand our true identity in Christ. Because we live in an in-between time where Satan still has authority on this earth. He still has influence over this world system. And if we don't understand who we are, we don't understand that we are God's men and women on this planet. And it's our job to make this world look more like he wants it to look. And so I wanted to share with you, I was, I was really impressed with, um, just hit me like, like a ton of bricks, like a a word of wisdom. When I read some comments that one of our church members put on uh, Facebook this week and, and believe you me, we're going to talk about Facebook in a minute because it's a sea of, you know, it's a mixed bag. But one of, I was so proud when I read this because I thought this is just it. This is what I want to say. I have his permission to share, but he asked if he could remain anonymous. So here's what he said. We stop bad things from happening when the opportunity for more meaningful connection is presented. You can make a change that legislation never will. Pursue a relationship with someone different from you. Value others. And maybe you will prevent a tragedy. That is a kingdom perspective. That is a kingdom perspective. You may not know. You probably don't. I'm not aware of anybody in our congregation who is personally connected to this incident. You probably don't know anybody that is personally affected. But you certainly know lots of people who are hurting and who are broken and who are wounded. And you may even know somebody who is on the edge. And what would it look like if we improved the way that we notice other people? 
the way we value other people. That's what we can do. We can love the person that is in front of us, and that is the way that you and I can change the world. Since we're on the subject of valuing other people, I, I just want to touch on Facebook for just a second. I have to say it. I might step on your toes. I'm sorry. I love you. I really do. But here's the pattern after something like this happens. It seems like every time this is how it goes. Like the immediate response is really good. Like, oh, you know, we're sorry. We're grieving. We're hurt. This terrible thing happened. It's awful. We're grieving with people. We're weeping with them. And then I don't, it doesn't take 24 hours, at least in my newsfeed, before everybody has just retreated very firmly into their camps, one side of the issue or the other, and they just start lobbing grenades over to the other side. And I get it. It's, it's an important topic. We have a lot of feelings about this. We do. So I'm not about, listen, I'm not about to stand up here and tell you what you need to think about this, what you need to think about gun control versus Second Amendment rights. And I'm certainly not going to tell you how I feel about it when I'm standing in this spot. But what I do want to tell you is that as a follower of Jesus, you don't have the right to devalue and dehumanize other people that think differently than you. That's what breaks my heart because for every well thought out and respectfully expressed opinion like the one that our friend shared, there are 10 more that are just hateful and demeaning and altogether unchristlike. And we have to understand that when we treat each other that way, we are participating in the very same system. It's that cycle and that dynamic that led that, you know, that young man to be bullied to the point of despair where he was devalued and he was dehumanized by sounds like just about everybody in his life. And so then he in turn devalued and dehumanized his victims. This starts with our words. It starts with our posts. It starts with our conversations, the way we speak to each other and the way that we treat each other. And so what I want to stand here today and ask of all of our people, and, and you guys, I've not seen, I'm so thankful, I'm so proud of our church because I've not seen anything specifically um, that, that, makes me think about, you know, all of this ugliness from our people. So I'm, I'm proud of you guys for the way that I've seen you behave and communicate. But we're tempted when we're passionate about things. We're tempted, especially online where we can be anonymous. So I'm asking you, please, please, don't tell your friends that are in favor of sensible gun regulations that they're communist snowflakes. And then on the other side of that equation, don't tell your people that you know that value their right to bear arms, that they don't care if children are murdered. Let's not talk to each other that way. Let's not oversimplify. Let's not devalue and dehumanize each other. Let's be better than that. Let's be better than that. We need Jesus to teach us how to follow him everywhere. And that includes Facebook. Sometimes especially Facebook. Okay, so now none of that is what I prepared ahead of time. 
None of that is what I prepared ahead of time. But I just, I think we have to talk about these things. I think they're important. So you guys ready for the, the actual sermon? <laughs> that was a bonus. That was a bonus today. But the actual sermon is, is actually about learning to follow Jesus everywhere too. So it all just kind of flows together. We need Jesus to teach us how to live. We need him to teach us how to live. So one of the, the great historical preachers, revivalist and preacher, founder of the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, Dwight L. Moody, he was quoted as saying, I'd rather be able to pray than to be a great preacher. Because Jesus Christ never taught his disciples how to preach, but only how to pray. And in fact, there's actually only one place that's specifically recorded in scripture where Jesus' disciples explicitly asked him to teach them anything. Which seemed odd to me when I, when I realized that. But It's in Luke 11, verse number one. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So today we're going to start a new series on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Now, if you've grown up around church at all, or even if you haven't, you're probably pretty familiar with this. This is probably a pretty familiar prayer. Most of us can recite it by memory. We hear it at weddings. We hear it at funerals. Lots of little kids in all kinds of denominations across the land. They all memorize it in Sunday school, and they get their little Bible bucks for it. So in a lot of ways, familiarity is a, is a good thing. It's a really good thing to have these like little nuggets of truth that they're easily accessible when our own words are difficult to find. Like when we're in crisis, sometimes like formulating what we want to say to God is hard. And so sometimes pre-written prayers and things like that can be really helpful. At least I find that to be true. So here is the Lord's Prayer as it's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 6, starts in verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, But deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So I have to be really careful when I do that. I have to like look at every word and read it. Because when I was a little kid, I learned it like with a certain wording. And that's the way my mouth wants to say it. So when I read it out of the Bible, sometimes I get tripped up. Like like in verse 12, um, instead of the way that it reads in in the NIV, I want to say... Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. You know, I told you guys a couple weeks ago I grew up Catholic, so that was the way, that was the way I learned it. And, and it just, I get tongue-tied sometimes, so I had to practice a lot. Um, but that brings up something that's really important to talk about, which is that along with all the wonderful benefits of having these familiar prayers and scriptures and songs and all the other ways that we use pre-prepared words, 
Um, there's this potential that we become so familiar with something that we cease to connect with the meaning of the words and we just repeat things in an absent-minded kind of way. And in fact, in Matthew's gospel, where we just read from, Jesus warns about that in the verses that are leading up to the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. In the King James Version of the Bible, that part about keep on babbling is, is translated vain repetitions. Vain repetitions. And I cannot tell you how many times over the course of my life I have heard this verse used as um, a justification for throwing out any pre-written prayers. Like that that was a bad thing to do because we don't want to be doing vain repetitions and so we can't use anything that someone else has written. All our material has to be new and like improv. But I don't... I don't think that we can come to the conclusion that that's what Jesus meant because the very next thing that he said was pray like this. And then he gave them the Lord's Prayer. But it is super important that when we use familiar pre-written prayers that we're focusing in on every single word, every turn of phrase, so that our hearts are connecting with God as we say them. It's really no different than these songs that we sung just a few minutes ago, right? Have you guys noticed that the songs that we sing at Vineyard, by and large, are songs that are they're, they're addressing God, they're to God, we're singing to God rather than about him for the most part? And that's, that's intentional. That's intentional because those songs become prayers for us. They become prayers. When we sing every word as though it were fresh communication in that moment. Like, when we were singing, uh, asking God to send us to the broken and the hungry. You can bet in that moment, I'm picturing someone that I've met at the mission, that I'm longing for them to experience the freedom of a relationship with Christ. And when we sing that, so I love that song, I'm no longer a slave to fear. When we, when we sing about that, what I think about are the years, I spent years and years just crippled with anxiety that just paralyzed me. And when I think about the way that Jesus has set me free from that, it's fresh every time. So I think about that when we sing that song. But these same songs can easily, they can super easily be just vain repetitions if we're just singing along without any kind of thought. So the same thing is true of prayers and the same thing is very true of the Lord's Prayer. So here's what we're going to do. Over the next seven weeks, we are going to slow everything down. Like really, really slow. We're going to slow it way, way down. Every week, we're going to take one line of the prayer. And we're going to meditate. Until we've worked our way through the whole thing. And the goal is that when we're done we'll have experienced a fresh perspective on this familiar passage and hopefully connected with the richness of the very purposeful and significant concepts that Jesus included in his model prayer. So let's have at it. We'll start with the first line because we're going to go in order. Otherwise, that would be confusing, wouldn't it? Starting with the first line, Our Father. 
What comes to mind when we hear the word father? Like, just sit there with that for just a second. What, what does that word conjure up for you? It's an important question to ask. Because right off the bat, the way that we answer that question, it just sets the tone for the whole rest of the prayer. I can tell you what the disciples probably thought. Our Father. They probably thought Jesus was crazy. We're, we're kind of desensitized to this in, in our Western culture, in our modern day age. But in that culture, this would have been a scandalous way to address God. What Jesus was saying is, our God is a Father that is intimate. And in Jewish culture, God was not seen as approachable. Not without the most careful of preparations. Ordinary people would never even dream of entering that inner court of the temple where they, where they said God's presence dwelled in that, in that inner courts of the temple. Like normal people wouldn't even ever get a shot at that. It was like one priest once a year that did all of these just insane preparations to be able to do it. And he had to be perfect and he had to get everything right. And they still tied a rope around that guy's leg so that if he got smote, they could pull him out. God was not seen as approachable. They were, people were afraid of God. They were afraid of him. They didn't even say his name out loud. That's where the term Lord comes from because they, the equivalent, the translation, they called him Lord. They didn't call him by his, his name because he was that scary. So you have to like take all of that and, and hold it in your mind and just imagine the shock that the disciples must have felt when they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. And Jesus said, pray like this. Hey, Dad. That's scandalous. Scandalous. Jesus was teaching his disciples something that was just entirely unheard of. I love this verse from Romans 8. Verse 15 says, The spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And it's by him we cry, Abba, Father. That term Abba was one of the most intimate, it's like saying Daddy. It's like the most intimate name that a child could address their parent with. And that's how we get to approach God. But oh, Just unheard of back in that day. And 1 John... Chapter 3, verse 1, to see what great love the Father has lavished upon us. I love that word, lavished. It just makes me think about the way that um, Vince would take care of Chrissy when she was small, and he would, he would go, and um, they had this um, tradition every year at Christmas. We would do all the Christmas shopping, and I would think that she had a sufficient number of gifts, and he would have to take her out one last time, before Christmas happened and, and just buy her just a few more things and then also this beautiful Christmas dress. Every year there was a Christmas dress and he always spent way too much money and I was really frustrated. 
But that was a picture of a father lavishing love on his child. And I think of that when I read that verse. So that, that's, a, that's a huge contrast from tie a rope around your leg in case you, in case you die, because you were with God and you weren't good enough, right? But our Father is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven. Our Father is not like earthly fathers. So I asked you a while ago to think about what, what, is that, what does that term conjure up, that idea of the Father? What does that make you think of? For some of you, thinking about your Father just evokes this overwhelmingly positive emotion. For others of us, that Father terminology can be a real barrier to a relationship with God, to understanding God. That's certainly been true for me. I'm going to tell you a little bit about that. But if you had a great dad, somebody you never had to talk to a therapist about, like, I don't want you to check out. Just hang in there with me because I promise there's application for you too, okay? So I've had three earthly fathers over the course of my life. So I don't want to brag. I don't want to brag, but I'm kind of an expert on daddy issues, okay? If they gave out degrees, I would have one. In fact, that's a huge part of my story. It really, really is. The mess that I made out of my life through my sinful response to sins that were committed against me. And the way that Jesus redeems everything, of course. So I don't have a lot of time to flesh that out this morning, but I just want to give you a couple of examples. My biological father abandoned my mother and I when I was a baby. Uh, For years, I saw him really infrequently. When I was real small, I didn't see him a lot at all. Um, And then when I was older and visitation became a regular thing, like there was a period of time in middle school or something that every other weekend happened. But he still, like even when I was with him, he hardly talked to me. Like he kind of pawned me off on my stepmom because, you know, he, he was kind of a an emotionally reserved person. Just, just that's the way he was wired. And in his defense, I guess sometimes it can be a little bit daunting to interact with a preteen girl. I mean, that's not easy for anybody, much less somebody that was wired like him. But he, he wasn't really, like, engaged with me. And then a few years later, when I was a teenager, and, and I totally went off the rails, like, a lot of self-destructive behavior that was just, I mean, it was a cry for help, but at the end of the day, I was pretty wretched. And he didn't have any trouble then telling me everything he thought, expressing his disapproval of the choices that I was making. So that was my biological father. So you wouldn't have thought that I would be surprised when I figured out as an adult that I had a tendency... To, to interact with God like that. Like God was distant. Like he was unaware of what was going on in my life and like he was unconcerned with anything except my good behavior. So I just took the way my dad saw me and then I superimposed that onto God. That's the way that uh, that works. Now, when I was five, my mom married a guy, stepdad number one, 
Um, the third one worked out really good. I'm not going to talk about him much this morning. He was a great guy. But stepdad number one, um, he seemed really great on the surface, like in the beginning. Uh, but it turned out that he was pretty volatile, mentally ill, pretty abusive. You know, and it didn't take too long into their relationship before we started to realize that. But by then, we were kind of stuck. So, but the thing, one of the things that was really hard for me to deal with when it came to my stepfather was that you never knew how he was going to respond. Like there was no predicting it. And so I developed this, this anxiety when it came to, to having to ask him for something. It could be anything. It could be like, oh, I need you to sign this field trip permission slip for school, or I need new pencils or whatever. Didn't matter what it was. I just never knew how he was going to respond. So... Because he, he could say, like, okay, or he could backhand me across the face, and I never knew which one it was going to be or why. So, like, I would have to rehearse what I was going to ask him, like, dozens of times before I could actually approach him. And even then, like, the words would get stuck in my throat. Like, I couldn't spit them out because I didn't know what was going to happen. And later, when I was an adult, it was one of the first church services that I came to in the vineyard. And the speaker was walking us through the ministry time, and and the instruction was to think of something that you want from God. I mean, that's something that we frequently, you know, have that exercise. What do you want from God? What do you want Jesus to do for you today? Well, ask him. And I sat there and I was feeling that same, like, that paralysis was so familiar that I didn't even recognize it anymore. But I was having trouble just asking God for whatever it was that I wanted from him that day. And I didn't know why that was so hard for me, but I heard the voice of the Holy Spirit whisper, you talk to me the way you talk to him, and you don't have to do that. You don't have to be afraid of me. And in that moment, that hesitancy that I had had in prayer for a long time, that just broke off. So... It might be easier to see the dynamic in an abusive kind of situation because the contrast is so huge. Like, obviously, God is not like an abusive person. And so it's a little bit easier to puzzle that out. But even in the best situations with the best dads in the whole world, sometimes they can represent God in a way that's just enough skewed as to be unhelpful. So we need the Holy Spirit to show us where this principle is at work in our life. Because here's the bottom line. We come to God, we relate to him. God who we can't see. We relate to him through the lenses of what we have experienced and what we can see. And sometimes we get that wrong. And, and we, need, we need revelation there. So that we can let go of those things. So that we can understand his father's heart toward us. Otherwise, we'll struggle to depend on him. So we won't trust him. Our father who is in heaven. He's accessible and he's intimate like an earthly father can be, but he's so much more. And he doesn't let us down. We can depend on him. To our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. What does hallowed mean? Hallowed means holy. It means consecrated, which is like set apart for a purpose. It means sacred. 
that would have been a much more usual framework with which to approach God that the disciples would have been used to. A God whose holiness required obedience to a strict code of law and rules and rituals. But that was until Jesus came. Jesus changed everything. He changed everything. He made everything different. So yes, God is sacred. Yes, God is holy. He is set apart by his majesty and he is the king of the universe. And yes, we should worship him. We should bow ourselves low. We should adjust everything in our lives. Everything about who we are and what we think and what we do and how we live. We should adjust that to a holy God. He is worthy of that level of respect and reverence. Hallowed be his name. But it made all the difference that Jesus started. He started with our father. It makes all the difference to us as well today. Because there is an order to things. There's an order to this process of maturity the way that we come to know God, the way that we come to sanctification is the churchy word for being transformed into the likeness of Christ. That's a process, and there's an order to it. And most of the time, we get this completely wrong and altogether backwards. Altogether backwards. We treat intimacy with God like it is a paycheck that we get, we earn that at the end of the day for a job well done like a gold star or a prize that we get because we were so good, then God will come and be with us. But here's Jesus. He's turning that thinking on its head and he's messing around with all of their boxes and he's saying, no, that's not the way that it works. It's actually entirely the other way around. First, you are given the intimacy of a loving father. That's the first step. The nearness of a God who from the beginning of time wanted, what did he want to do in the garden? He wanted to walk with us. He wanted to talk with us. He wanted to be with us. He wanted to be near to us. First is the intimacy. And then, then as you, as you get to know God and you get to know who he is, you get to know what he thinks about you, how he sees you. You get to know that his character is dependable. You get to know that he loves you. Then, out of that, develops trust. Because you know who he is. You learn how to depend on him. And then, the obedience, the worship, the reverence, the, the wanting to change things around in our lives to align with him that just ends up being a response of love to someone who first loved us. That's the order. That's the order. That's what the Bible says. We love because he first loved us. So as we think through this, Let's remember, let's remember this order. Let's remember the importance of not getting these steps switched around. Let's remember that this is the way that God designed it to work. And let's remember that he is our father. He is in heaven. 
and hallowed be his name. As I finish up today, I would love, if you guys wouldn't mind, for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together again. I know that some of you were, were praying along as we read it earlier, but I'd like to, I'd like to go through it again uh, before I finish. From Matthew chapter 6, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.